This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. This episode is brought to you by History Unplugged Premium the membership site that lets you get way, way more out of History Unplugged. After over 250 episodes of this show, that's covered everything from prostitution and ancient Sumeria to Cold War spycraft, we've launched a special members-only program. First, if you join, you'll get complete access to the show's archives. Currently, only the most recent 20 episodes are listed on the feed. This includes hundreds of hours of content. If you join Level 2 membership, you get members-only episodes. This includes a multi-part series on the life of Audie Murphy, the most decorated soldier in World War II and Hollywood star, and Ottoman Lives, where I spend episodes looking at the cast of characters that made up the Ottoman Empire, such as the Sultan, the Eunuch, the Concubine, and the Soldier. If you join at Level 3 membership, you get a personal shout-out at the end of every episode for you or your business, and you get three hardcover history books as a bonus. You can learn more about History Unplugged Premium if you go to patreon.com unplugged. That's patreon.com unplugged. One more time so it sticks in your brain, patreon.com slash unplugged. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. Olada Equiano was born in 1745 in the African country that is now Nigeria. The adults working in the fields during the day left the children to fend for themselves in the villages. Older children were often given the task of acting as lookouts, and if they saw any traders approaching the village, specifically slave traders, they would let out a loud cry. Olada and his sister were in the hut when they heard the cry. Looking out the door, Olada saw the traders hurrying into the village and knew that there was no time for them to reach the safety of the trees. He and his sisters crouched in the corner of the hut and held their breath. Their hearts were pounding and their ears were strained for the sound of approaching footsteps that surely came their way. Both Olada and his sister were roughly seized and their mouths were stopped with dirty cloths to stop them from crying out. Sacks were placed over their heads and they were carried away from the village. After a while, they were put down on the ground, and their hands were tied behind their backs. The sacks were replaced over their heads, and again, they were carried until nightfall. Although they were offered food that first night, the children were unable to eat. They felt too sick from fear, the dirty rags that had been in their mouths, and the confinement of the sacking over their heads. After a few days traveling with the traders, as more slaves joined the party, they reached a larger African settlement, 
and here, Alada and his sister were separated and sold to different families. During the seven months that Alada spent in slavery in Africa, he was mostly treated kindly, in some cases as part of the family, and he was given fairly simple household tasks to do. In Africa, slaves had a measure of respect, and their status as part of the family was valued. But Olada discovered that slavery in America was very different. Eventually, he was sold to another trader. Olada was marched many miles and saw the landscape change. He was soon shocked to see that the land had changed to the color of the sky and appeared to be moving up and down. Olada was very frightened and had to be dragged near to the sea. He then noticed a very big house, or what he thought as a house, on the moving land. The people around the big house looked very strange. They had long hair, white skin, and spoke a strange language. Olada thought that they were devils. Because of his youth, Olada was not chained like the men and women, but he was dragged aboard the ship. There, he saw a large copper pot above a furnace, and fearing that he was going to be boiled alive and eaten by the white men, he fainted on the deck. When he came around, black men were standing over him, and he was reassured that he was not going to be eaten. As Olada looked back toward the shore, he saw that he was moving away from the shoreline and realized he would never see his homeland again. Suddenly, all the slaves were forced below deck. The hold was overcrowded. Each man only had about 18 inches space in which to sit. Everywhere, people were sweating, vomiting, urinating, and defecating from fear and the movement of the ship. The smell was overpowering, and many fainted or died from the stale air. There were tubs at one end of the hold, which served as toilets, but they were rarely emptied, and often small children would fall in and drown. Olada was so ill from the smell and the condition in the hold that he was allowed to sit on deck during the day to breathe fresh air. All he wanted to do was to die. He was unable to jump overboard because of the nets on the sides of the boat, so he refused to eat. He was beaten for not eating, and not wishing to be punished again, he began to eat some food. Eventually, the ship reached the West Indies, and although many slaves had died on the crossing, many remained alive. Merchants and plantation owners came aboard the ship to look at the slaves, and Olada was made to jump up and down and stick his tongue out by one of the men. Slaves were poked and prodded all over their bodies by potential owners who wanted to be sure that they got the healthiest slaves. The next day, the slaves were taken ashore, and Olada was amazed to see that the houses were made out of bricks. He was even more amazed to see people riding horses, and this served to enhance his belief that the white people were devils. All the slaves were put into a pen like a sheep pen. Suddenly, there was a beat of a drum, and merchants and plantation owners rushed up to the pen to choose the slave they wanted. Because he was so sickly, Olada was one of the last to be chosen. He was taken to a big house and was deposited in the kitchen. Here, the sight of the black cook, who had a huge wire frame fitted around her mouth, shocked him. He was later to learn that the mask was a punishment for talking too much. Olada was not strong enough to work in the fields, and so was given the task of sitting with the grandfather of the house, who was dying. All day long, he had to sit on a hard wooden chair ready in case the old man wanted anything. He also had to help feed him. His day was very boring. Sat in the deathly quiet room with only the ticking of the clock for company. The ticking of the clock was punctuated by the groaning and moaning of the old man 
as he fought to draw breath. Mealtimes broke the monotony, but they turned Olada's stomach as he spoon-fed soup to the old man, who dribbled and coughed and sputtered all over him. When the old man died, Olada was sold to a sea captain who allowed the sailors on board the ship to teach him to read and write. Although he was very well treated by the merchant, Olada longed to be freed and returned to his homeland. He began buying fruit before sailing and selling it on to the sailors for a small profit. Eventually, he saved enough to buy his freedom. As a free man, he settled in England. He met Granville Sharp and other members of the Society for the Abolition of Slavery. He made public speeches, giving a first-hand account of the treatment of slaves during capture, sea passage, and slavery. Slavery had been abolished in Britain in 1807 and throughout the empire in 1833, in which Britain closed down slavery shipping routes and slaver outposts on the coast of Africa. Olada eventually traveled back to Nigeria to find his homeland, but sadly there was no trace of his village or his family. This account comes from Equiano's biography, The Interesting Narrative of Olada Equiano, or Gustavus Vasa the African. This was one of many accounts from slaves or ex-slaves themselves that fueled the abolitionist movement to try to stop the practice of slavery. And a lot of Equiano's account is a good example of what was happening with slavery in the New World, where people from Africa are first captured by African slavers, and slavery had existed as an institution in Africa since time immemorial, much as it had throughout much of the rest of the world. And slavers had happily shipped them to the Middle East, as we talked about two episodes ago. But something was different this time. When they went to the New World, slavery was now starkly drawn along racial lines. And the dehumanization was something fierce. There was no possibility of manumission or being freed unless your master wished it or you could buy it. But there was nothing in the law that stated if you bore your master a child or your original master died or you converted to another religion, that you'd somehow have an easier pathway to being released. And this period is also unique because we have many more accounts of the slaves themselves. The two periods in history where we see a lot of these accounts come from the Roman world, where many Greeks were taken captive and became the tutors of Roman masters, and we have accounts of them, like Epictetus, the great Stoic philosopher, and now, in the New World, where when slaves are released, some of them are given education, like Olada Equiano, able to write their accounts, and we still have their stories today. So in this episode, we're going to look at the slave trade in the New World. It's a continuation of the story of slavery that has existed since the beginning of human civilization. So we'll look at forms of continuity of slavery from the Old World to the New World, especially with the Spanish bring over and strategies they used with the native populations, which were similar to strategies they used with Muslims in the Iberian Peninsula. But we'll also look at what changes when you have entire economies built around slavery because you're harvesting crops that are very labor intensive, like sugarcane or cotton. And also how the ideologies of slavery and race change at this time. Do the ideologies come first and then the slave economy come second? Or does the economy come first and then the ideologies come second? This is an issue we'll get into quite a bit because slavery this time is tinged with racism in a way that earlier forms of slavery were not, which is really ironic because slavery is becoming widespread and omnipresent in the new world 
at the exact same time that the Enlightenment is happening. The Enlightenment ideas of reason, science, humanism, and progress, and universal human rights. But the same Enlightenment produces race as we understand it, a biological taxonomy that turns physical difference into relations of domination, where racism is a socio-political order based on permanent hierarchy of particular groups. Now, people understood racial difference in the past. In medieval Spain, for example, there are forms of anti-Judaism. And after the Inquisition, it wasn't just enough to be Jewish, but Jewish ancestry itself was grounds for suspicion. And there was prejudice and discrimination directed at the Irish on one side of Europe and certain Slavic peoples on the other side of Europe. And Enlightenment thinkers drew on ideas of race from the ancient world to build our modern notion of race. But it took the scientific thought of the Enlightenment to create an enduring racial taxonomy. The color-coded, white-over-black ideology that justifies slavery on such a massive scale and the enslavement of Africans in the New World. So these thinkers set aside the metaphysical and theological scheme of things, of understanding how people is being created, and they swapped it out for a logical description and classification that ordered humankind in terms of physiological and mental criteria. Johann Friedrich Blumenbach's 1776 volume on the natural varieties of mankind posited five divisions of humanity, beginning with Caucasians, him thinking that those who are white came from the Caucasus region. These frameworks evolved into theories of racial difference, and it evolved in order to solve a question. If natural rights are universal, if all people are created equal, which is the cornerstone of American constitutional thought and also a lot of Enlightenment thought, and if everyone has the capacity to reason, and as people like Olada Equiano show and many other slaves, there's absolutely no reason that anyone on earth couldn't reach this level, then what is the explanation for enslaved Africans in the Americas? Well, the answer that many came up with was biological inferiority in accordance with these racial classifications. It was a way that an educated Southerner who might have read Enlightenment thinkers and even study law and argue legal cases on the basis of universal rights, at the same time himself even own a slave. In this episode, I'll talk about the origins of New World slavery, the types of dehumanization faced by those like Olada Equiano, and how slavery and the ideology of slavery undergoes co-evolution with the economic conditions of the new world that create a new kind of slavery different from the old world, but then also similarities between slavery in the new world and the old world as well. Slavery, of course, predates European expansion into the Atlantic world, goes back to the very beginning of civilization. Sumerian cuneiform tablets talk about slavery. But the system that developed during the 16th and 17th centuries was what many scholars argue to be a more inhumane, exploitative, and racially tinged institution than anything that had existed in Europe, Africa, or the Americas. The European conquest of the Americas and the establishment of colonies was profit-oriented, even if that wasn't always the case. And indigenous peoples were initially preyed upon for their labors in the Caribbean and throughout the Americas, especially in the silver mines of Mexico and the Andes. Bound European laborers were also employed by the thousands, particularly by the French and the British in their West Indian and mainland colonies, where they were used primarily as plantation laborers. 
A combination of factors, most notably the death of Indians from epidemic diseases, such as smallpox, and the expansion of labor-intensive plantation agricultural enterprises, especially sugar cultivation, led to the decline of these earlier forms of bound labor that you saw in the old world and the emergence of a new predatory system of slavery that relied on bound African laborers. The inability to treat white Europeans in a slavish fashion also encouraged Europeans to look elsewhere for a labor force that could be totally dominated and compelled to serve the needs of the labor-starved American planters. The system began in the 16th century as a relatively small-scale system. But the transatlantic slave trade erupted in the 17th and 18th centuries to meet the demand for human beings to cut sugarcane and tend the sugar mills in Brazil and the West Indies, also to work the tobacco fields and rice paddies of North America, and generally to perform backbreaking and dehumanizing tasks that Europeans didn't want to do themselves. The labor regimes and legal systems that developed in different parts of the Americas varied greatly, but everywhere Europeans came to agree that Africans were uniquely valuable commodities whose labor, the slaves, was necessary for the wealth and power of both Europe and the emerging states in the Americas. And slavery grew because there were large and powerful groups in the Americas who were just as, or more, committed to maintaining slavery as a social institution, as there were abolitionists and slaves who wanted to make slaves free. The strength of the supporters of slavery was considerable, even as the moral case in favor of slavery declined. Slavery did not end until the 19th century in the United States, or even in the 20th century in Africa and the Middle East. Slavery even flourished in the first half of the 20th century, as we'll talk about in the next episode. And that's not to say there wasn't resistance. The intellectual underpinnings that supported the subjugation and exploitation of certain groups of humans by other humans came under unprecedented attack following the American, French, Haitian, and Latin American revolutions. The main protagonists in this tussle against slave owners were European and white North American abolitionists. Slaves and ex-slaves played a significant role in their own liberation. But it was hard to wrest slavery out of the New World because slavery was vitally important in transforming the Americas into the most economically dynamic part of the world in the early modern period, the 1600s onward, let us say, 1600s to 1800s. And it's hard to contemplate how the Americas could have even developed as they did without slavery, without a massive labor force to do horrific labor on labor-intensive crops. Barbara Solo argues, it was slavery that made the empty lands of the Western Hemisphere valuable producers of commodities and valuable markets for Europe and North America. What moved in the Atlantic in these centuries were predominantly slaves, the outputs of slaves, the inputs to slave societies, and the goods and services purchased with the earnings on slave products. And it's hard to argue that the plantation sector wasn't the most dynamic part of the New World economy before 1800 for industrialization, with rates of economic growth that corresponded well to rates in industrializing Britain and the United States, and with strong productivity gains, especially in the second half of the 18th century. But we have to understand that slavery had a beginning that preceded the European discovery of the New World. It was developed alongside other forms of slavery, such as those in Africa and the Indian Ocean, 
and it didn't end just because it became illegal in the Americas. But slavery in the Americas is especially interesting as being both a highly destructive and also, and this is weird to say, but a highly creative force. What I mean by that is that the Atlantic slave trade and slavery in the Americas devoured people. The most important feature of the slave experience in the Americas was death. Most Africans who were sent to the Americas, especially those who went to the heartlands of slavery in the Caribbean and Northeast Brazil, lived in desperation. Their lives were nasty, brutish, and short, as Thomas Hobbes describes the state of nature. It resulted in an early death with few, if any, descendants to remember the horrific problems of their parents and grandparents. And the demographic statistics speak for themselves. Africans accounted for the great majority of immigrants into the Americas before 1820. However, they made up a small percentage of the total population of the Americas in 1900. Their numbers were swamped by the huge waves of European migrants who not only moved to the Americas in great numbers from the mid-19th century onward, but survived and flourished demographically. So that much of the Americas is not demographically dominated by black people in the 21st century is a testimony to the physical destructiveness of slavery. Now, what I meant by it as a creative force is that the contributions of slaves and then their descendants who were freed is indisputable with a certain element of dynamism in new world cultures. I'll talk about that more in the next episode once we talk about emancipation. But these positive contributions are, for better or for worse, and almost definitely worse, intertwined with the history of slavery. And just to get back to this theme on how harsh it was in the New World compared to different time periods, one criterion for measuring the harshness of different slave systems, whether in the Americas or the Middle Ages or the Middle East or the ancient world, is to compare their treatment of manumission, of releasing slaves. You could say that the harsher the treatment, the harsher the system, the more difficult it was for slaves to attain freedom. Manumission was common in Greece and Rome, despite harsher slave exploitation there. Manumission counts rose across the Western world during the Middle Ages, when serfs could leave their land to fight on a crusade, and then later after the Black Death, were mostly free to move around outside of land in which they had been previously contractually bonded. In the Middle East, if you bore a child to your master, then you couldn't be divorced and the child would be a legal heir. But most Western societies were especially harsh toward slaves who sought to attain freedom on their own. They were also harsh toward those who assisted runaways or fugitive slaves. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. All right, well, let's go back to the beginning. How did slavery develop? It took on unique characteristics of the New World, but the slavery that existed throughout the Americas was neither predetermined nor was it the outcome of a series of unthinking decisions. It was a result of conscientious decisions. One place you can look at to begin are the Iberian powers, Spain and Portugal, in the early 15th century, who bring their culture with them when they colonize the New World. 
And their slave systems stemmed not so much from a backwards glance at the assumed benefits of the various slave systems of the ancient medieval worlds of Western Europe, as it did from a self-conscious, pragmatic, and forward-looking assumption about the profits to be derived from exploiting this particular form of labor. And the assumptions of Spanish and Portuguese interacted with their own assessments of the human worth, or lack of it, of Africans compared to their own and the indigenous inhabitants of the New World. But this also interacted with the willingness, well into the 19th century, of many West and West Central African leaders to fuel the transatlantic slave trade that evolved relatively rapidly during the course of the 16th century. And we saw with Olada Equiano, he was first captured by African slavers and didn't encounter any white person until he reached the coasts. No white person was going into the African interior because he wouldn't have survived. And these African slave traders weren't just capturing slaves in cases of warfare, like was done historically, but were capturing people for almost any reason at all. Anyway, back to the development of New World slavery. The slave systems that the Spanish and Portuguese introduced came to differ from how things were done in the old world in degree, but not necessarily in kind. It was during the latter part of the 15th century that the ideological and pragmatic pieces of the Western European jigsaw that would culminate in a decision to enslave West and West Central Africans in the Americas were beginning to slot into place in the Iberian Peninsula. At this time, the Iberians had a close familiarity with African powers. Maybe not West Africans, but North Africans. Years of North African or Moorish occupation of large parts of southern Spain had been brought to an end. And the Spanish were willing to enslave some of those who remained within their realm. If any justification for this process was required, it was found in the traditional European concept that being captured in just wars, wars that were waged against non-Christians, usually Muslims, legitimated the captives' enslavement. And another factor was the degree of unification that stemmed from the marriage of Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile in 1469. This caused them to consolidate their realms and then to begin to look outward to secure the wealth that might derive from establishing trading links with parts of the world that were unknown, at least to the Europeans. While the English and French were latecomers as colonizers compared to the Spanish and Portuguese, who by the mid-16th century had established themselves as the dominant European powers in South America, the Caribbean, and the land surrounding the Gulf of Mexico. That's not to say that they were ignorant of the environments and indigenous peoples of the eastern Atlantic seaboard. They made their own voyages, beginning with John Cabot's transatlantic voyage in 1497. And West Country merchants developed seasonal trading links, particularly in fish and furs, with the people who inhabited the coast of what's now called Newfoundlands in Canada and New England. And the English people came to regard Native Americans there as valuable trading partners. But because of Spanish power, English trading ventures were confined to the northerly parts of the North American continent. With a steady stream of precious metals being shipped back to Spain, especially gold found in the empires they conquered in Central and South America, reinforced the notion of enormous wealth that could be obtained from the New World. And this gave motivation for English privateers to continue going there. Another way in which the Portuguese in Brazil and the Spanish in the Caribbean basin 
or acquiring immense wealth was from the production of sugar, a commodity that became known in some quarters as white gold. Sugar became popular in medieval Europe with plantations springing up in the Middle East and Iraq, Middle Eastern rulers becoming very wealthy by offering it to Europe who couldn't grow it on their own because they didn't have the right climate. When it was found that it could be grown in the New World and completely bypass the Middle East, there was a sort of gold rush that happened. It gave the English another model for the exploitation of the Americas. Now, these crops were highly lucrative, but they were also very labor-intensive. And the free population simply could not provide enough labor, and it was such miserable work that they wouldn't want to. So plantation agriculture relied upon enslaved African labor as early as the 1530s and 1540s. This dependence made the Atlantic slave trade important. Initially, the Dutch dominated the trade. They were displaced by the English in the latter part of the 17th century, though. The planters who bought captive Africans literally could afford to work their slaves to death. They could replace dead workers with newly imported men and women. In fact, the average life expectancy of an enslaved worker on the sugar estates of Brazil and the Caribbean was around seven years after arrival from Africa. And as long as the trade continued, sugar planters weren't interested in exploiting the reproductive and productive potential of African women by encouraging them to have children. So these enslaved men and women did their best against terrible odds to try to carve out something resembling a society of secure family relationships with one another. But the ever-growing European demand for sugar and tobacco that could be produced in many parts of the Americas was the prime stimulus for the development of the transatlantic slave trade. From the early 16th century onwards, the trade allowed for the continued expansion of racially-based systems of bondage. There wasn't much opposition in the beginning. Before the middle of the 18th century, the main opposition to these processes would be offered by those being enslaved, whether on the slave ships or after their arrival in the Americas, rather than by the Europeans. Well, when Europe began thinking in terms of establishing permanent colonies in the middle of the 16th century, as opposed to the temporary trading posts that they had set up before, they were aware of the different dimensions of the paths blazed by Spain and Portugal. Wealth was the driving force of the schemes that got underway in the mid-1580s, with what would quickly prove to be the ill-fated settlement of Roanoke. The prospect of untold riches was what fueled the initial colonizing efforts of the English. In the New England colonies, there were groups like the Puritans to spread their version of Christianity in the Americas and do missionary work among indigenous peoples, but this vision was crowded out by the desire for accumulating wealth. The founders of the Virginia colony, despite their knowledge of one route to wealth, slave-based plantation economies, they actually rejected this at first in favor of what they anticipated would be an even quicker way to making money for themselves, by exploiting the precious metals they expected to find in the region of Chesapeake Bay. They also assumed that trade with Native Americans would provide another lucrative source of income, and even the anticipated expeditionary voyages along the waterways of Chesapeake Bay that would reveal a secure and ready accessible passage to the Orient. They were still living the dreams of Columbus a hundred years later. But almost all these expectations were dashed within a few years of the first settlement at Jamestown in 1607. The colony barely survived and was on the point of collapse. Disease of one kind or another 
ravaged the all-male settlement. Those who survived were too weak or unwilling to undertake the agricultural tasks that would allow them to survive. There were a few reforms introduced by the Virginia Company during the 1610s, and there were new migrants who were attracted by the propaganda of wealth that ensured the settlement's survival. But there was something else that allowed it to thrive. There was privatization of land and the introduction of representative government, but something else allowed it to generate the wealth dreamed of by the Virginia Company and the colony's first settlers. Here's what it was. It was apparent that the environment around Chesapeake Bay precluded the production of sugar. But, largely due to experiments conducted by John Rolfe during the mid-1610s, it became evident that this region could produce another crop that was much in demand in Europe. That is, tobacco. The land reforms introduced by the Virginia Company encouraged private initiative in the introduction and expansion of a crop that, unlike sugar, required a minimal investment in capital equipment. All that was needed to make a handsome profit from tobacco was enough land, which was plentiful in the New World, and sufficient labor, which could not be supplied by a migrant population that was still decades away from growing significantly by natural reproduction. And the native populations would not provide the labor. There was a Native American assault on Jamestown in 1622 that almost wiped out the settlement. That solidified poor relations between the two groups. The English did not hesitate to take any land from Native Americans by force. And this began hostilities that would continue for the remainder of the colonial period. The notion that Native Americans had a legal or moral right to the lands they occupied was swept aside by pragmatic tobacco planters. But securing the lands they needed by force solved only part of the problem. Labor had to be provided to maximize profits from these lands. The options available to planters were clear enough. They could have tried to copy the early Iberian sugar planters in Brazil and the Caribbean basin by putting Native Americans to work in their tobacco fields. This, on the face of it, would seem to have been the cheapest option available to them because no transportation costs were involved. And if they felt any need to justify the bondage of Native Americans, they could have fallen back on the long-standing Western European belief that capture in a just war could result in enslavement. This is what settlers in Massachusetts did a few years later. But the planters in Virginia did not turn to Native American workers. And the reason was pragmatic instead of ideological. Essentially, the Native Americans were close to home, they were on home country, they knew the terrain, and they could very easily escape. It's not that enslavement didn't happen, but one aspect of slavery and slave training that does go back to time immemorial is to do your best to move your slave as far from their home country as possible. When Africans would be transported to the Middle East, when they were in alien lands, away from their home country, from their home culture, from their customs, this led to the desocialization, the social death that would occur. If you were enslaved on your own lands and knew the terrain and could easily escape, there was very little that could keep you there. To solve this dilemma, the Virginia tobacco planters of the 1620s and 1630s looked to West and West Central Africa to provide a continual supply of all the labor they required. These slaves were in an alien land. They had really nowhere to escape to, and if they could escape from the colony, few of them would know how to provide for themselves. And they would very clearly stand out if they did try to escape, and a master went looking for them. The English colonists were aware of the fact that this had been the solution adopted by the Spanish and Portuguese. 
to bring in slaves from Africa. Moreover, 16th century English stereotyping of West and West Central Africans certainly provided an ideological framework for their enslavement. English thinking was deeply rooted in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, as well as medieval travel accounts. There were ideas of the curse of Ham, one of the sons of Noah, who's believed to have been one of the forefathers of Africa, who he himself for his sin was cursed, and that curse went on through his descendants. So theologically, one could make the argument that there was some justification in enslaving Africans. The earliest of these encounters with the English and Africans took place in what proved to be somewhat contradictory motives behind English voyages to the West African coast. The English had no interest in establishing colonies there, unlike centuries later, and unlike their Portuguese and Dutch counterparts, displayed no interest in attempting to convert them to Christianity. What the earliest English voyagers to West Africa were interested in was trade. In 1555, a trader named John Locke, and that's just L-O-K, not L-O-C-K-E, returned to England with five West African men. He intended that these men learn English, be trained in the nature of English commerce, and then return to Africa to set up trading posts and assist English trading ventures in the future. But at the same time, other figures, such as John Hawkins, had a much different approach. They weren't content with trying to take the Spanish galleons carrying precious metals back to Europe, so Hawkins and others saw another way to make money from the Iberian powers in the New World, by satisfying what seemed to be the Iberians' endless demand for enslaved workers. Anglo-Spanish rivalries led to the exclusion of the English from this trade for another century, which left it open to the Dutch. What those early English attempts to penetrate the transatlantic slave trade reveal is abundantly clear. Not only willingness to be complicit in the enslavement of West Africans by other Europeans, but also the possibility that, should the need ever arise, they would also brutally exploit West Africans in any colonies that they might establish at some future date. The English voyagers, particularly those who ventured to the West African coast, returned home with West and West Central Africans. These people form the nucleus of a black population based in London and Bristol. And here, English lawyers had to deal with a question that they were first perplexed by. What was the legal status of this population? And could slavery exist under English common law? After all, it had been largely abolished since the Middle Ages. There was no contemporary precedent for slavery in England. Even serfs in the Middle Ages had a limited degree of freedom and rights in terms of natural entitlements and customary law. Now, that's not to suggest that the English had no understanding of the circumstances under which slavery might exist or the grounds in which it might be justified. They could find justifications in the Old Testament and cite examples from the ancient world, but there was little guidance in the writings of English jurists except for the enslavement of captives taken in war. English common law, in fact, favored personal liberty. For the English, enslavement was akin to the complete loss of freedom, what amounted to dehumanization. And at least in their legal codes, to treat a man like a slave was to treat him like an animal. The way this was solved is that England gave colonial proprietors and colonists a degree of self-government. Because of the riches that stem from slavery and the transatlantic slave trade, 
Successive English monarchs and parliaments were happy to leave colonial governments to determine the legal status of all members of their populations as they saw fit. And in those colonies, the English people who crossed the Atlantic to establish colonies had deeply unfavorable stereotypes about West and West Central Africans that motivated the racially-based systems of bondage in English America. By the late 16th century, the English thought negatively about West Africans. These thoughts were in marked contrast to the ideas of the noble savages of the Native Americans. So as we can see, England didn't want slavery on its homeland, but it liked the riches that slavery brought to its empire, so it let it take place in its colonies, sort of like a form of moral laundering, where it decries slavery back in England, it talks about universal human rights, but lets the colonists do it so they can benefit from the wealth it created. Now, for those colonists who began to hammer out their own ideologies of why Africans were deserving of being enslaved, there were three things in particular that they thought set Africans apart from themselves and other Western Europeans. First, and the most important, was the blackness of their skins, a blackness that for 16th century English people was loaded with negative connotations of evil, sin, dirtiness, and the danger and the devil itself. This could go both ways, as a lot of thought that white people were the devils too. To them, it was a blackness that contrasted with the purity of whiteness of the English. Contemporary attempts to explain the blackness of West Africans compounded this negative image. They thought that since all humanity derived from Adam and Eve, who were held to be white-skinned, then how could the blackness of Africans be explained? They reasoned that Africans were descendants of Ham, son of Noah, whose curse by his father was not only that he should be ugly and dark-skinned, but also that he would become the servant of servants, that he would serve his brothers. And Ham's brothers were thought to be the forefathers of Europe and other continents. So the blackness of West Africans had originated as a divine punishment for sinful behavior And the thought was Africans carried this original sin of their forefather that justified their enslavement. There was also a strand in 16th century English writings about West Africa that actually doubted the very humanity of that region's indigenous peoples. To the English, the Native American culture seemed sufficiently advanced for a mission of civilization grounded in Christianity, especially when they heard stories about the Aztecs and the Incas to the south and their fabulous cities, it was easy to imagine the humanity of the indigenous peoples. But the reverse was true of their thinking about West Africans. Travel accounts accused them of cannibalism, female mutilation, and engaging in sexual relations with animals. These accounts didn't acknowledge the political sophistication and economic achievement of many West African societies. Or in places like Mali or Timbuktu, where you have civilizations with architecture and legal codes and everything else that you would think of with a wealthy, advanced medieval society. But many of the English saw what they wanted to see. People who, in every respect, were different from and inferior to themselves. So given these negative assumptions, together with the fact that they had been aware of the racially-based plantation economies of Latin America and the Caribbean, This led to the enslavement of African workers and their being brought over to the Virginia colony in the 1620s. And it started off slowly. By the mid-1620s, at the height of Virginia's first tobacco boom, there were fewer than 100 Africans in the colony. Thirty years later, 
they still numbered fewer than a thousand. Whatever their status might have been prior to their arrival in Virginia, once there, it was shrouded in ambiguity. It may have been that in terms of their conditions of employment, they were regarded in the same legal light as English servants. What is clear is that they were not immediately consigned to perpetual servitude or denied all personal rights. The fundamental components of slavery didn't begin to slot into place in Virginia until the second half of the 17th century. This is partly because the slave trade of the time was dominated by the Dutch. As far as the Dutch slave traders were concerned, there were two obvious American markets for the human cargoes they shipped across the Atlantic, the sugar colonies of Brazil and the Caribbean. These well-established markets enabled the Dutch to sell their human cargoes, which, depending on mortality rates in the Middle Passage, could amount to 400 or 500 people, quickly and usually at a handsome profit. The rapid turnaround time of slave ships optimized the number of voyages per year. Virginia of the 1620s and 1630s had none of these commercial advantages, wasn't large, wasn't as lucrative for the traders. Tobacco prices might have been high, planters able to afford to purchase enslaved workers, but this isn't how the Dutch saw things. What they saw was that there was only a population of 1,200 and the population was becoming more dispersed along the waterways of Chesapeake Bay. And Jamestown couldn't really be described as a thriving commercial center. It was nothing compared to Brazil or Caribbean ports. And it didn't have the infrastructure to enable the rapid sale of enslaved people. Along with this was the additional time and expense it would take slave ships to sail north to Virginia, when it was still entirely possible that their prospective customers had been wiped out by Native Americans. 1622, there was a huge attack, and Dutch traders really didn't know the status of the Chesapeake Bay colony. The Dutch saw absolutely no point in trying to exploit the Virginia planters' demand for labor. We know that in 1619, the Virginia colonists were willing to recruit 20 Africans into their workforce. What we don't know is how they would have reacted during the 1620s and 1630s had the West and West Central Africans been made available to them on a regular basis. The prices they were receiving for their tobacco suggest they could have afforded the prices being charged by the Dutch. There's no evidence that suggests, though, that they found either the idea or the practice of a racially based system of slavery unpalpable. In fact, evidence of English behavior elsewhere in the Americas suggests that had they been offered enslaved workers, they would have not hesitated in accepting them. 1619 is a critical date when we look at the beginning of slavery in the U.S. According to one record, in 1619, 20 Africans arrived off the coast of Virginia where they were bought by labor-hungry English colonists. The story of these captive Africans has set the stage for countless scholars and teachers who want to tell the story of slavery in English North America. Now, this is a critical date for the Virginia colony, but 1619 was not the first time Africans could be found in an English Atlantic colony, and it wasn't the first time people of African descent made their mark on the land that would someday be part of the United States. As early as May 1616, blacks from the West Indies were already at work in Bermuda, providing knowledge about the cultivation of tobacco. There's also evidence that many Africans plundered from the Spanish were aboard a fleet under the command of Sir Francis Drake, when he arrived at Roanoke Island in 1586. 
1526, enslaved Africans were part of a Spanish expedition to establish an outpost on the North American coast in present-day South Carolina. Those Africans launched a rebellion in November of that year and essentially destroyed the Spanish settlers' ability to sustain the settlement, which they abandoned a year later. So Africans were part of the early American story. They helped American colonists survive, and they were also able to destroy European colonial ventures because their involvement was so important. But the import of slaves from Africa to English colonies in the 1620s accelerated when the English acquired their first two possessions in the Caribbean, St. Kitts, also known as St. Christopher, and Barbados, which was located at the most easterly edge of the Caribbean basin. Both were suited to the production of subtropical commodities, including sugar, but it was Virginian tobacco that provided the economic model for these settlements. There were English merchants and shippers willing to compete with the Dutch to supply them, and they were willing to employ African workers, and we know this because as early as 1626, a merchant named Morris Thompson landed 60 Africans on St. Kitts. By the mid-1630s, Barbados also was moving rapidly towards an ever-increasing reliance on African workers, workers that had no reluctance in enslaving. The need for African workers lagged for a while as the English moved to a model of indentured servitude. For those who could not afford their transatlantic passage, an Englishman could pay for his eventual freedom by laboring for a clearly defined number of years. And as long as a sufficient number of English people could be persuaded to cross the Atlantic as indentured servants, the unavailability of African workers didn't matter too much. The system by which slaves were brought from Africa to America was known as the triangular trade. This was the name given to the trading route used by European merchants who exchanged goods with Africans for slaves, shipped the slaves to the Americas, sold them, and brought goods from the Americas back to Europe. Merchants who trade in this way could get very rich as these agricultural American products fetch a high price in Europe. So the three legs of this triangular trade was first from Europe to Africa, where goods were exchanged for slaves. Then the second trip was a transportation of slaves to the Americas, nicknamed the Middle Passage. And the third and final leg of the journey was the transport of goods from the Americas back to Europe. In the Middle Passage, this is where some of the most notorious incidents of the slave economy took place. Slaves were packed into slave ships, and they could either be packed in a tight pack or a loose pack. A tight pack would result in many more slaves being transported than a loose pack, but more slaves would die en route to the Americas, like what Olada Equiano experienced. Conditions on slave ships were so terrible that many decided they'd prefer to die and tried to starve themselves by refusing to eat or jumping overboard. And that's why many of these ships were equipped with nets to prevent people from doing so. Once in the Americas, slaves were sold by auction to the person that bid the most money for them. If a slave weren't already separated from his or her family before they left Africa, they would typically be split up here because the bidder most likely wouldn't want to buy the entire family. Either they wouldn't have enough money for it, and slaves were quite expensive, or there might be a member of the family that didn't meet one of his needs. Only a whole family would be purchased in the very unlikely situation that every member of the family meet the slave owner's needs, or the slave owner happened to be very wealthy and wanted to show mercy. 
But buying an entire family unit could pose its own dangers because they could all communicate with one another in the same language. And a slave master worried of rebellion. He would want slaves that didn't speak a common African tongue and would have to resort to English. Slave auctions were advertised when it was known that a slave ship was due to arrive. Posters would be displayed around the town. When the slave ship docked, the slaves would be taken off the ship and placed in a pen. Then they'd be washed and their skin covered with a grease, or sometimes a tar, to make them look more healthy, perhaps to cover up any wounds from being physically assaulted during the voyage over. They'd also be branded with a hot iron to identify them as slaves. When it was time for the auction itself, the slaves would be brought from the pen. They'd stand on a raised platform so that they could be seen from the buyers. Before the bidding began, those that wished to could come up on the platform to inspect the slaves closely. And the process probably wasn't too dissimilar from the advice manual we saw two episodes ago on how to buy a slave in Cairo written in the 1300s, a very thorough inspection of all the different parts of their body. The slaves had to endure being poked, prodded, and forced to open their mouths for the buyers, see if they had good teeth or didn't have any dental conditions that could cause later health complications. The auctioneer would decide a price to start the bidding. Younger slaves, and especially children, would fetch a higher price, and the older or the very young or sickly slaves would fetch a lower one. Now let's jump ahead from the colonies to the decades immediately prior to the Civil War. Slavery is now fully established in the United States, and let's see what this institution looks like. By 1830, slavery was primarily located in the South, where it existed in many different forms. African Americans were enslaved on small farms and plantations, but they were also enslaved in cities and towns, inside homes, out in the fields, and in industry and even transportation. Slavery had a wide variety of aspects, but the underlying concepts were always the same. Slaves were considered property, and they were property because they were black. Their status as property was enforced by violence, whether actual violence or threatened violence. And people, black and white, lived together within these parameters, and their lives together took on many different forms. Enslaved African Americans could never forget their status as property, no matter how well they were treated by their masters. But it's too simplistic to say that both sides hated each other because the relationship was complex. That's because humans who lived and worked together were bound to form relationships of some kind, and some masters and slaves genuinely cared for each other, as we'll see in the next episode with the very strange case of Thomas Jefferson and his slave Sally Hemings. But the caring was always tempered by the power imbalance between the two sides. The nature of the relationships ran the gamut from compassionate to contemptuous, but there was never equality. The standard image we have of slavery in the South is a large plantation with hundreds of slaves. These were actually outlier situations. That's because slaves were expensive, so much so that three-quarters of Southerners didn't even own slaves. And of those who did, almost 90% owned 20 or fewer. And whites who didn't own slaves were primarily poor yeoman farmers. Slavery didn't help these people, and in fact, it probably drove down wages for them and made them poorer. Despite that, non-slave-holding white Southerners defended the institution of slavery. 
They may have resented the wealth and power of the large plantation owners driving down the prices of crops, but they aspired to own slaves themselves one day and join the privileged upper classes. In addition, slavery gave farmers a group of people to feel superior to. A poor white was not on the bottom of the social pyramid, no matter how hard they fell in life. In the Lower South, the majority of slaves lived and worked on cotton plantations. Most of these plantations had 50 or fewer slaves, although the largest plantations had several hundred. Cotton was the leading cash crop, but slaves also raised rice, sugarcane, corn, and tobacco. Many plantations raised several different types of crops, unlike today. Besides planting and harvesting, there were other types of labor required on plantations. Enslaved people had to clear new land, dig ditches, cut and haul wood, slaughter livestock, make repairs to buildings and tools, and other tasks. In many instances, they did skilled work as mechanics, blacksmiths, drivers, carpenters, and other trades. Black women did many other tasks like this as well, but they also had to care for their families and cook and take care of children, as well as spinning, weaving, and sewing. Some slaves worked as domestic help, providing services for the master's or overseer's families. These people were designated as house servants, and their work in some ways was easier than that of the field slaves. In other ways, it was more difficult. They were constantly under the scrutiny of their masters and mistresses and could be called on for service at any time and didn't have nearly as much privacy. Because they lived and worked in such close proximity to their masters, house servants and their owners tended to form a much more complex relationship than simply master and slave. Black and white children were especially in a position to form bonds with each other. Young children of both races typically played together on farms and plantations. Black children might also become attached to white caretakers, such as the mistress, and white children to the black nannies. They wouldn't understand the complex racial system into which they had been born into. But these rules were quickly learned as they grew up. One difference that became clear very early were levels of health and nutrition. The diets of enslaved people were barely adequate to meet the caloric demands of their heavy workload. They lived in crude quarters that left them vulnerable to bad weather and disease. Their clothing and bedding were also minimal. Slaves who worked in the household sometimes fared better. They got the cast-off clothing of their masters or had easier access to food. But the heat and humidity of the South created health problems for everyone living there, and plantation slaves had it by far the worst. Unsanitary conditions, inadequate nutrition— and unrelenting hard labor made slaves highly susceptible to disease. The rice plantations were the worst. That's because they had to stand in water for hours at a time in the sweltering sun, where there were mosquitoes and malaria was absolutely rampant. In fact, this was one of the leading causes of death for the British in the Revolutionary War because all of the irrigation work done had led to swamp-like conditions and a pandemic of mosquitoes. This led to very high child mortality rate on these plantations as well, generally around 66%. On one plantation, it was as high as 90%. But one of the worst conditions that enslaved people had to live under, beyond health, beyond nutrition, everything else, was a constant threat of sale. Even if their master was kind to them, 
Slaves knew that a financial loss or a personal crisis could lead them to the auction block. Also, slaves were sometimes sold as a form of punishment. Although popular sentiment in the South, as well as economic self-interest of the owner, encouraged keeping mothers and children together, and sometimes fathers, these norms weren't always followed nor legally required. Immediate families were often separated. If they were kept together, they were almost always sold away from their extended families. Bonds between grandparents, sisters, brothers, and cousins were constantly being broken. Even if they or their loved ones were never sold, slaves had to live with the constant threat that they could be. African-American women had the additional burden of having to endure the threat and practice of sexual exploitation. There were no safeguards to protect them from being sexually stalked or raped or harassed or used as long-term concubines by masters and overseers, and many women were sold for this explicit purpose. The abuse was widespread as men with authority took advantage of the situation. And slave men, for their part, were powerless to protect their wives or the women they loved. The drivers, overseers, and masters were responsible for plantation discipline. Slaves were punished for not working fast enough, for being late to the fields, for defying authority, for running away, or any number of reasons. Punishments took the form of whippings, torture, mutilation, imprisonment, or being sold away from the plantation. Slaves could even be murdered. Some masters were, again, more benevolent than others and punished less often or severely. But there was always a firm authoritarian relationship in place. In addition to the authority practiced on individual plantations and the local law there, slaves throughout the South had to live under a set of laws called the slave codes. These varied from state to state, but the idea was the same. Slaves were considered property, not people, and were treated as such. Slaves couldn't testify in court against a white. They couldn't make contracts, couldn't leave the plantation without permission, or even strike a white person in self-defense. They couldn't own firearms, gather without a white person present, or possess any anti-slavery literature. The killing of a slave was almost never regarded as murder, and the rape of a slave woman was treated as a form of trespassing. Whenever there was even the rumor of a slave insurrection, the laws became tighter. This was a fear that many had in the South. If you lived on a large plantation, you were in a rural area, away from the city, there could be dozens or even hundreds of slaves on the plantation, and it would just be you, a few field masters, and if they rose up against you and worked together, there's really nothing you could do. Therefore, at times, patrols were set up to enforce the codes. These patrols were similar to militias, or were made up of white men who were obligated to serve for a set period. Patrols apprehended slaves outside of plantations, and they raided homes in any type of gathering, searching for anything that might lead to insurrection. During times of insurrection, either real or rumored, enraged whites formed vigilance committees that tortured, terrorized, and even killed blacks. While most slaves were concentrated on the plantations, there were many slaves living in urban areas or working in rural industry. Although over 90% of American slaves lived in rural areas, slaves made up at least 20% of the population of most southern cities. In Charleston, South Carolina, slaves and free blacks outnumbered whites. Many slaves living in cities worked as domestic help, but others worked as blacksmiths, carpenters, shoemakers, bakers, or in other trades. 
Slaves were often hired out by their masters for a day or up to several years. Sometimes slaves could hire themselves out. Urban slaves had more freedom of movement than plantation slaves and had greater opportunities for learning. They also had increased contact with free black people who expanded their ways of thinking about slavery. Now, even though there was an authoritarian relationship between slaves and masters, that doesn't mean that there weren't forms of resistance. And resistance took on many forms beyond a total uprising. It could slow down their work pace, disable machinery, feign sickness, or destroy crops. They could argue with their masters. They could steal livestock or other valuables. They could learn to read and write, a practice forbidden by law. They could burn forests and buildings. Others could kill their masters outright by using weapons or poisoning their food. Some slaves mutilated themselves to ruin their property value or even commit suicide. So slaves were not brainwashed into thinking that they were living in a valuable, equitable system, but many found ways to sabotage the system in which they lived. Thousands of slaves ran away. Some left the plantation for days or weeks at a time and lived in hiding. Others formed communities in mountains, forests, or swamps. Those that could escaped to the north. And there were also many instances of slave revolts. And even when slaves acted in a subservient manner, they could still practice a form of resistance. By fooling the master overseer with their behavior, they resisted additional poor treatment. Now, even though slaves had a fear of being sold hanging over their heads, and plantation life tried to prevent them from forming a community, African-American slaves could still do so. This was a tremendous undertaking for people whose lives were ruled by forced labor and domination. But slaves still married, had children, and worked hard to keep their families together. They could let down the masks they had to wear for whites in their slave quarters. Back in slave barracks, men, women, and children developed an underground culture. They gathered in evenings to tell stories, sing, make secret plans, and house servants would come down from the master's house and give news of the master and mistress, and sometimes even imitate the whites and make each other laugh. In this setting, many enslaved people developed and passed down skills which allowed them to supplement their poor diet with an inadequate medical care, with hunting, fishing, gathering wild food, and foraging for herbal medicines. Adults here taught their children how to hide their feelings to escape punishment and to be skeptical of something a white person said. To find solace, many slaves turned to religion. Some practiced African religions, including Islam, but nearly all practiced Christianity. Many practiced a brand of Christianity that included strong African elements. The slaves had their own meetings, essentially a church service. They spoke of the New Testament promises of the Day of Reckoning, of justice and a better life after death, and related to Old Testament stories of Moses leading his people out of slavery in Egypt. So one of the oldest institutions of African-American life in America is the church, an institution that predates the emancipation of slaves in the American South. And particularly, they held on to stories about the Israelites who, despite being enslaved in Egypt or being forced into exile in Assyria or Babylon, were able to hold on to their culture and resist the degradation of bondage. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with Midi Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. 
The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause, and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Now, to wrap up the story of slavery in the United States, there's a lot of different angles we could take. We could look more deeply into plantation life. We could look at accounts of slaves who escaped on the Underground Railroad. But I think a lot of these stories have been fairly well documented. There's movies that tell the story better than I could right here, like 12 Years a Slave that came out recently. And in the next episode, we'll look at emancipation and how the abolitionist movement got going. So we'll bring up some of the stories there. But what I would like to end on is a story that I don't think is very well known, and that is Slavery's Trail of Tears. This is a forgotten migration, the journeys of a million African Americans who went from the coastal regions of the South into the southern interior of the United States and what that experience was like. This is an account that was written up by Edward Ball in the Smithsonian Magazine. So let me recount that story here because I don't think it's very well known. The Slave Trail of Tears is a thousand-mile-long river of people that reaches from Virginia to Louisiana. During the 50 years before the Civil War, about a million enslaved people moved from the Upper South, from Virginia, Maryland, and Kentucky, to the Deep South of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. They were made to go or deported there after having been sold. This forced resettlement was 20 times larger than Andrew Jackson's Indian removal campaigns of the 1830s, which gave rise to the original Trail of Tears that drove tribes of Native Americans out of Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama. The Slave Trail of Tears was bigger than the immigration of Jews to the United States in the 19th century, when 500,000 arrived from Russia and Eastern Europe. It was even bigger than the wagon train migration to the West in American lore. But this movement of a million individuals, it gave this Deep South what Ball considers a character it retains to this day, and it traumatized uncountable families. Virginia was the biggest source for deportation. Nearly 450,000 people were uprooted and sent south from the state between 1810 and 1860. In 1857 alone, the sale of people in Richmond amounted to $4 million. That's nearly half a billion today. They were mostly transported by the firm of Franklin and Armfield, which Isaac Franklin and John Armfield established in Alexandria, Virginia in 1828. Over the next decade, with Armfield based in Alexandria and Franklin in New Orleans, the two became the tycoons 
of the domestic slave trade with an economic impact that's enormous. In 1832, for example, 5% of all commercial credit available through the Second Bank of the United States was extended just to their firm. They forced March slaves overland from the fields of Virginia to the slave auctions, New Orleans and Natchez, which was the main artery for the rest of the Deep South. Armfield began vacuuming up people from the Virginia countryside to sell to the slave markets in New Orleans, which was the beachhead for the growing United States in the early 1800s. To do this, the partners employed stringers, headhunters who worked on commission, who collected enslaved people up and down the East Coast, knocking on doors, asking tobacco and rice planters whether they would sell. Many slaveholders were happy to do so, as their plantations made smaller fortunes than many liked. It took four months to assemble a big coffle. This was a term used to describe the assemblage of slaves that would march to the South. The company's agents sent people down to Franklin and Armfield's slave pens in Alexandria, just nine miles south of Washington, D.C. These slaves worked many professions. They were seamstresses, nurses, valets, field hands, carpenters, houseboys, coachmen, laundresses, and boatmen. There were also so-called fancy girls. These were young women who would work mainly as concubines. By August 1834, Armfield had more than 300 ready for the march. Around the 20th of that month, the caravan began to assemble in front of the company's offices in Alexandria. In a travelogue written by a man named Ethan Andrews, he describes the scene and how they were getting ready for an enormous journey. He said, Four or five tents were spread, and the large wagons, which were to accompany the expedition, were stationed where they could be piled high with provisions and other necessities. New clothes were loaded in bundles. He said, Each Negro is furnished with two entire suits from the shop, which he does not wear upon the road. Instead, these clothes were saved for the end of the trip so each slave could dress well for sale. And in this assemblage, there were also a pair of carriages for the whites. In 1834, Armfield sat on his horse in front of the procession, armed with a gun and a whip. Other white men, also armed, were arrayed behind him. They were guarding 200 men and boys lined up in twos, their wrists handcuffed together, a train running the length of a hundred pairs of hands. Behind the men were the women and girls, another hundred. They were not handcuffed, although they may have been tied with rope. Some carried small children. After the women came the big wagons, which were six or seven in all. These carried food, plus children too small to walk ten hours a day. Later, the same wagons hauled those who had collapsed and could not be roused with a whip. Then the coffle started to march west out of the town, on the roads to New Orleans. This mass movement of slaves creates the image of the chain gang, where in the Depression you have prisoners that are bound together by chains in similar ways as these slave coffles, where they're handcuffed in pairs with iron staples and bolts. One account from Charles Ball, who marched in several coffles before he escaped from slavery, describes this in more detail. Ball was bought by a slave trader on Maryland's eastern shore and later wrote a memoir. He said, My purchaser told me we must set out that very day for the South. I joined 51 other slaves whom he had bought in Maryland. A padlock was then added to his handcuffs, and the hasp of each padlock closed on a link in a chain 100 feet long. 
Sometimes the chain ran through an iron neck collar. He said, I could not shake off my chains nor move a yard without the consent of my master. The procession kept moving forward, and one night in September 1834, a traveler stumbled into the Armfield Koffel's camp. He described what the scene looked like. He said, Numerous fires were gleaming throughout the forest. The female slaves were warming themselves. The children were asleep in some tents, and the males, in chains, were lying on the ground in groups of about a dozen each. Meanwhile, the white men were standing about with whips in their hands. The man was George Featherstonehaw. He was a geologist on a surveying tour for the federal government, and he described the slave trader as a raw man in nice clothes. He said that John Armfield wore a big white hat and striped pants. He had a long, dark coat and wore a mustacheless beard, and the surveyor talked to him for a few hours and saw him as a sordid, illiterate, and vulgar man. He noted that Armfield had overpowering bad breath because he loved raw onions. The next morning, the gang readied again for the march. Featherstone Haw wrote that it was a singular spectacle. He counted nine wagons and carriages and some 200 men, manacled and chained together, lining up in double file. He said, I had never seen so revolting a sight before. As the gang fell in, Armfield and his men made jokes, standing near, laughing, and smoking cigars. On September 6th, the gang was marching 50 miles southwest of Roanoke. They came to the New River, a big flow of about 400 feet across, and to a dock known as the Ingalls Ferry. Armfield didn't want to pay for passage, not with his hundreds of people, so one of his men picked a shallow place and tested it by sending over a wagon and four horses. Armfield then ordered the men in irons to get into the water. This was dangerous. If any man lost his footing, everyone could be washed downstream, yanking one another by the chain. Armfield watched and smoked. Men and boys sold on average for about $700. Multiplying that by 200, a lot of his investment was walking across the river. This was about $140,000 total, or about $3.5 million today. His slaves were insured, but it would be inconvenient to collect on such damage. He didn't have to worry because the men made it across. Next came wagons with young children and those who could no longer walk. Last came women and girls, and Armfield crossed them on flatboats. Once the Koffel arrived in New Orleans, slaves for sale would wear a uniform of sorts. The men dressed in navy blue suits with shiny brass buttons, as they marched by twos and threes in a circle. Felix Hadsel, a local man, described the scene. The women wore calico dresses and white aprons and a pink ribbon at the neck with hair carefully braided. But the display was weirdly silent. No commands given by anyone, no noise about it, no talking in the ranks, no laughter or merriment, just marching round and round. This is what the scene was like at the auctions. After about an hour of this, the showing of the stock, the enslaved stood in rows on long overhanging porches. They were sorted by sex and size and made to stand in sequence, men on one side, in order of height and weight, women on the other. A typical display placed an eight-year-old girl on the left end of a line, and then ten people, like stair steps up to the right end, ending with the 30-year-old woman, who might be the first girl's mother. The sorting arrangement meant that it was more likely children would be sold from their parents. New Orleans, the biggest slave market in the country, 
had about 50 people selling companies in the 1840s. Some whites went to the slave auctions for entertainment. For travelers, these markets could rival the French Opera House. The St. Louis Hotel is one of several places that can be identified as a slave trading site. Next door to it was another, the New Orleans Exchange. At the center of the St. Louis Hotel was a rotunda 100 feet in diameter. A reporter for the Milwaukee Daily Sentinel wrote that over it rose a dome as lofty as a church spire. He said, the floor is a marble mosaic. One half the circumference of the rotunda is occupied by the bar of the hotel, and the other half by entrances to the vaulted room. There were two auction stands, each five feet above the floor, on either side of the rotunda. And beneath the dome, with sunlight shafting down through windows in the apse, both auction stands had business simultaneously in French and English. He wrote, The auctioneer was a handsome young man, devoting himself exclusively to the sale of young mulatto women. Another reporter described a sale in 1855. On the block was one of the most beautiful young women I ever saw. She was about 16, dressed in a cheap striped woolen gown and bareheaded. Her name was Hermina. He wrote, She was sold for $1,250 to one of the most lecherous-looking old brutes I ever set eyes upon. Here, too, in the St. Louis Hotel's vaulted room, families at the end of the slave trail were divided. The same reporter described a noble-looking woman with a bright-eyed seven-year-old. When the mother and the boy stepped onto the platform, however, no bids came for them, and the auctioneer decided on the spur of the moment to put the boy on sale separately. He was sold to a man from Mississippi, his mother to a man from Texas. The mother begged her new master to buy little Jimmy too, the reporter wrote. He refused, and the child was dragged away. She burst forth in the most frantic wails that ever despair gave utterance to. Slavery destroyed lives. It separated families. It was firmly entrenched in the United States. It had the full support of society, had legal code supporting it, many people working in this industry. So the question is, how did it finally come to an end? If it was socially accepted in much of the United States, how did it disappear? How was it dismantled? We know the story of the Civil War of Emancipation, but we don't take a step back and consider how strange it is that slavery appears throughout civilization whenever society becomes organized and complex enough and hierarchical enough that there is a wealthy ruling class that can dominate a lower class. So we shouldn't be surprised that slavery exists, but yet it's more surprising that slavery comes to an end. How does it come to an end? Why is slavery gone in the 21st century? Well, illegal forms still persist in huge numbers, but the very fact that it is illegal is something unprecedented in history. How does this happen? The next episode, we're going to be looking at the story of abolition and emancipation and how all these changes came about. All right, well, that was the episode for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to support the show and help me keep producing this content, there are four easy ways for you to do it. One, subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to do that, you can go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and there you'll find instructions. Two, join our Facebook group, which you can find if you just search for History Unplugged. And please like and share posts that I put up about new episodes. Three, submit a question to me so that I can answer it on air. 
You can email me at info at historyonthenet.com or leave a voicemail. And again, go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and you'll find instructions. Anyway, those are the ways you can help out the show. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history-related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.